The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Theater of the absurd or masterpiece theater? AMC shares, other so-called meme stocks in the spotlight yet again. What the amazing moves are saying about the market at large and your money. We'll debate that with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, John Najarian here as well. Nice to see everybody. Go to the wall. Stocks sloshing around again today. Dow's positive. Everything else, though, negative yields. Ten-year yield, 162. Yes, there is much focus again on meme stocks. AMC, BlackBerry, the others all on the move. Dr. J, and you're right in the thick of it, trading a lot of this stuff. Talk to me. Well, Scott, um, it was absolutely incredible. It's been incredible really all year in some of those so-called meme stocks. I more or less figure they're rebel stocks because these are not regular Wall Street folks that are driving them. Um, but I have a lot of respect for the folks on Reddit uh, that, that are ganging up on these stocks, Scott. Um, yesterday, those individuals uh, accounted for 4.6 million option contracts traded in those, uh, just in AMC. Now that is eight times the volume of all of the FANG stocks options combined. Now I didn't say all of their stock trading combined and there's a reason for that, Scott. Uh, the reason is that a lot of the leverage uh, that is necessary when you know, you're basically going up against Wall Street, you're going up against hedge funds and the like that have multi-billion dollar uh, cash hoards that are backing up their investment thesis. Um, these accounts, obviously at Robinhood and elsewhere, are much smaller, but they are leveraged perhaps 20 to 1, 50 to 1, because they are buying options for 2 and $3. Um, in many cases, those options have run to like 40 and $50 on these massive moves in these stocks. And AMC, Scott, was $2 at the beginning of this year. Traded $76 in the pre today, slammed down, came back. Now it's down again. I mean, the volatility is enormous. Well, what about you, Doc? What, what about you? We, I know about the they. What? I know about the they. What about the you? How are you trading this today? Okay. okay. Well, today I've mainly, you know, just sold a whole bunch of calls against what I had um, because, you know, it was profit taking time. Um, and what I'm looking to do, Scott, is re-enter when I see a big surge of volume again in these names. So just to put a ribbon on it, perhaps, um, we saw, uh, and Pete reported, I guess, with you yesterday, all of that activity last week and virtually every day this week. Not just AMC, but AMC, um, BlackBerry, BB, uh, taking a look over uh, costs on the stock side. They don't have options there, but on the stock side and costs, I mean, so all of these names, I was trading very aggressively in there, delighted by the movement. And like I say, 
I think this is a cadre of traders that are trading on their apps. You know, they're, they're on their phones, Scott. But they are enhanced by a whole bunch of Wall Street paper that is coming in as well. This is not just the Reddit crowd. Um, this is a whole bunch of hedge funds based on the volumes that we see. So what am I doing? When those bigger traders are in there um, liquidating, I am liquidating. And that's why I did uh, sell so many calls against what we were holding, Scott. But I'm not making fun of these guys. When they pick um, an area to go into, it's usually somewhere between 20 and 35% short interest. So there's some tip-offs in that regard. And they are willing to just stack in there and just keep buying and holding. You know, that's why the meme thing kind of got started right. because Rob, if they you, put up Braveheart or the 300 or whatever. I, I got it. If you need more evidence, um, BlackBerry at one point today was the most active stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so, and it's not yeah. just that. It, it is literally, you know, as some are pointing out, going down a list of stocks with the highest short interest and then targeting some that, you know, we rarely talk about. And I don't want to mention the specific names now. Um, because they're ones we never talk about, but they are ones that have had sizable moves with smaller market caps. Steve Weiss, you, I, I was going to say, well, you were, you were day trading this yesterday on, on the show, but it wasn't even like day trading because it was like minute trading, second trading. That's what you were literally doing with, um, what was it, AM, or GameStop or AMC yesterday? It was GameStop, and uh, my thought was very simple. It's that they just took, you know, AMC, it was a crescendo. They just exploded to the upside. And I'm saying, okay, where, if I were a Reddit trader, where would I go for the next move? So I bought some GameStop, bought and sold it in under a minute for seven points. So it was a nice trade. You know, to me, I look at what's going on here, and I think there are two types of traders that are involved, just to generalize. One are the John Nigerians and Pete Nigerians who really know what they're doing who are seeing opportunities there and some other professionals. And then there's the clown car of traders. And I, I'm not going to make fun of the Reddit traders. Well, you mean you some just called it a clown good car? Opportunities. You just called it a clown car well, and then that's in the same the sentence side, said, I'm not going to make fun they, of them. Well, I'm not going to make fun of all of them. The clown car allows the professional traders to make money. The ones that are going in there and say, I'm sticking it to the man, I'm rebelling against Wall Street, I'm rooting out corruption, corruption, that's idiocy. That's not going to change anything. There's no corruption. They're being the butt of the joke for the AMCs that couldn't raise capital, that are now raising capital like crazy, you know, or the hedge okay. funds that come in and help AMC raise okay, capital. Okay, so you, you, so you, look, you do, this is you not do, indicative. You, 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 hang on one second. I mean, you, you do raise an interesting point that I've been thinking a lot about, too. And that's this idea mm -hmm. of AMC sort of professing its love for this cohort of traders that continue to push the stock higher, yet the company uses that move higher to raise equity and dilute the very people that it claims to quote unquote love. At, in the same token, of course, Adam Aaron today, as in part of the filing, says, you know, well, we wouldn't recommend buying the stock at, at these levels, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, but your point is, is well taken. Yeah, look, that's what they're doing. And it's a brilliant move by AMC, raising capital at these prices, which is not as dilutive as it would be where they were trying to raise it at much lower single digits. So, yeah, there's the clown car that's enabling the professionals and the companies. But this is not indicative of market top.
these four or five stocks are not going to do anything for the market. It's not calling the end of it. It's just a sideshow. It's an entertaining sideshow. But I'm just not playing it, I, and I'm not focused on Josh, I don't even have them on my screen. Josh, you know, do, do you think that this is a, a sideshow? It feels to me like this is the show, that it's, it's an indication of so many yes. different things. It's an indication of risk. It's an indication of a speculative market. It's an indication of a Fed-induced market. It's an indication of just sort of where we are. It's an indication of how retail is thinking about the stock market these days. It's too simple to me to just say it's not indicative or an indication of anything but a sideshow. I feel like it's the show. Well, it's the show in a, in a summertime slow market where there really aren't a lot of other big stories going on. This obviously has every ingredient that the financial media, not just CNBC, but Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Fortune, Forbes, everybody needs something like this uh, to come along when things are relatively slow, which they are, by the way, uh, in the overall markets, because it's got every element you could want. Um, it's got protagonists you can root for. It's got uh, the, the, the David versus Goliath factor. It's moving quickly. There are new developments seemingly every hour. So it is a sideshow. It's a really entertaining one. I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, I don't think that the majority of retail investors are involved in AMC. And I don't even think the people involved in AMC, for the most part, view their activity as having anything to do with investing. Let me share a statistic with you. According to Capital.com, there was a 63% surge in first-time derivative trades uh, in AMC uh, in the last two weeks. And they say 82% of traders taking a long position uh, of trading options on their platform are taking a long position in AMC. So that's mostly people, it's their first time ever trading options. And what's hilarious is for a lot of them, they've made money overnight in a way that no professional would ever counsel them um, to behave. So what are you going to say to somebody that's up 2,000% since January by being involved in this stock? You, you really don't have the moral high ground to talk down to them. There aren't a lot of professional money managers who have 2,000% gains in any position they've ever owned in their whole career. So this is going to go on for a while. You're not going to talk people out of doing this. It's no different than a, a, a multiplayer online role-playing game uh, to, to a lot of them. They're having fun. They're learning. There's recreation. In many cases, they're learning the wrong things to do. But that'll all sort itself out. I don't think that we need to tie this activity to a bigger story about how the whole market has completely been, been taken over by speculators. Because I can show you competing data showing the amount of money that's being calmly and wisely allocated into index ETFs, uh, of course. 401ks. Of we course. just have a lot of money out there but right you, now. But you yourself this week in Fortune, Josh, wrote the following words. And I think it plays right into the story that we're discussing here. We're going to show a tear of your story titled, Your Father's Stock Market is Never Coming Back. Quote, remember when stocks traded on fundamentals, or at least they traded based on people's perceptions of the fundamentals? What do they trade on today? It was always a popularity contest. Now it's a three-ring circus. You're speaking exactly to this kind of market that we are witnessing today, are you not? Yeah. It is a circus, but that doesn't mean the whole stock market is a circus. Mm -hmm. I really feel that we have to look at this activity 
and not try to um, extrapolate it into a bigger story that says everybody's gambling. I, I, I know many investors, as, as I'm sure Steve does, as I'm sure John does, and the rest of our panelists, we know many investors who are looking at this and saying, that's crazy. Most people are not saying this is the new way to invest. So I just feel we have to allow this to coexist alongside of the bigger story, which is that earnings are growing, the economy is growing, joblessness is falling through the floor, the Fed continues to be accommodative, and stocks, real stocks, are making new highs, uh, and, and, and there's a deserved reason for that being the case. It's not all options gambling. There are companies that are in the best situations they've ever been in their lives, and the new highs for those stocks make a lot of sense. You don't have to say it's Reddit. Uh, that's driving that activity. Yeah. Two things could exist at the same time. Okay, Jenny, your, your thoughts on, on what's going on here. I, I, I know just from sort of the kind of investor you are and the, the, the longer-term capital, I guess I can say, that, that, that you describe yourself as and uh, the kind of money manager, you're not playing this game. Not at all. And so when you say it's the whole show, to me it is the whole show today for one hour. I work about 60 hours a week on investing. 59 of those hours this week will be spent with no thought whatsoever given to these meme stocks. They have no influence. And I don't see that they're indicative of anything. In fact, I think they're completely contained within the crowd that's playing them and within themselves. I don't see contagion to the rest of the market. I don't see any overflow. When I look at what's doing well this year, you've got, you know, I'm a dividend investor, right? So I look at the Dow Jones Select um, Dividend Index. That's up 28%. Interestingly, last night I had this incredible privilege of going to an ideas dinner. No one's had these in, in, I don't know, a year and a half. So I went to this ideas dinner hosted by another portfolio manager. There were nine of us. It was an extraordinary group of managers who managed billions of dollars. As we went around the table and shared our ideas, I was shocked that three of the ideas were in the metals and mining space. All of us are having great years. No one's talking about these. No one's really investing in these. So to me, I don't want to use the word sideshow. It, it's not that, but I've been trying to find the right analogy, and I kind of think of it like this. You know, a, a graduate professor who's teaching philosophy is a teacher. A nursery school teacher is a teacher. They're both teachers. There's no relationship between what they do all day or how they look at the world. And so I think maybe that's the right analogy. There are people playing in this space. One other thing, when you said the CEO said, don't buy my stock, that's not exactly what he said. He said, don't invest in this stock. I'm sure he wants people to buy it. There's a difference between the traders and the investors. The real investors are not in this space. It's just kind of okay. fun. It's like side cocktail party okay. fodder. Um, I mean, you're entitled. You're, you're entitled to your, your your point of view, and not necessarily. I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's fine too. That that's why we we're having this debate. Let's bring in somebody who is, I think, considers himself a serious investor and who is involved in these stocks. Robert Chapman of Chapman Capital joins us. Robert, are you there? I am. How are you, Scott? I'm good, Bob. It's been a long time. I, I you know I don't think that we've we've been on television together since the Herbalife days. And I just happened to reach out to you, say, hey, you know, what's going on here? Are you involved at all? And you shot me back that said, yeah, I'm, I'm involved and I'm trading these. And, and how so? Like, what's your view on all of this? Well, it's been fun listening to your panel talk and, and discussing the, the relationship between the meme stocks and the overall market. And, and my perspective on it is a blend of, I think, what I heard others say, um, with one exception, is that I... I've been investing now and trading now for over 40 years, and there is a certain amount of gravity that pulls different parts of the market into each other. And these meme stocks will play a role 
in pulling other groups up or down. And in the end, like you said, you look for things that are symptomatic. And with 0% interest rates and infinite interest in stocks right now, these meme stocks will be something people talk about when the market craters. It will be something that people will look at and say, obviously, we should have been underinvested in equities. Look what was going on with the individual investors. Are you, when I said that you're, you're involved in some of these stocks, can you get specific with me? Are you trading these stocks on the long side, the short side? Just can you take me through that and our viewers through that a bit? Yeah, so I've had a couple strategies I've employed. Um, options seems to be the right way to go. First of all, as uh, one of your panelists mentioned, there's almost yes. infinite liquidity infinite liquidity in these options, particularly in AMC. So you can get positions put in place very, very easily. I mean, in, in milliseconds at reasonable levels in, in between the bid and ask. And so I mostly use put spreads, just outright buying puts. Uh, it's just too expensive, so I look for five or ten point verticals and try to get. Uh, they're, they're expensive, but if, if I have that direction, right, it'll still pay off in the end. You can have a, a forty or fifty percent gain pretty easily. The other thing I'm doing is the pre-market trading tends to be um, when a lot of guys are getting buy-ins and they're panicking. Um, they, I think, they go to sleep at night. They see they have a short position. They wake up in the morning, check the markets, and the fever to cover the shorts really peaks. And so I've been taking advantage of that on the short side in the morning. Hmm. Um, I'd love to get the, the group involved um, with you, Bob, because it's such a unique perspective that you have. And Dr. J, I think it sort of plays into the way that you're thinking about and, and the way that you've been trading these things, too. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that Rob is uh, availing himself of the options. It is what's driving these stocks, Scott. Um, that liquidity, as I've already said, um, eight times more than the rest of the fangs combined yesterday. Now, that's not every day, but it has averaged three and four hundred thousand options, AMC that is, per day um, during this run. And so I think he's exactly in the right spot. The leverage is the secret sauce for these Reddit traders in particular. And Robert has identified that. Um, it, it's really tough, Scott, to get in there and hold a stock from $30 up to $60. I mean, that takes intestinal fortitude that I don't have. But to have an option and to keep rolling that option up, or since Robert's playing to the downside, putting on a put spread and rolling that spread down, what a tremendous way to play it. That is the best way to profit rather than just putting a whole bunch of money out there and just, you know, praying or doing whatever you have to do to sure. uh, wish for that stock to keep going that direction. I think he's spot on. That's the same way I'm doing it, Rob. Bob, Bob does it does it end badly? Um, does it matter to the overall? Yeah. We're trying to have this conversation about I whether do. it matters to the overall market. Well, I will say I've been talking about this now. Um, for way too many hours during the average day with, with friends and, and, and fellow investors. And what I've, I've said to, to most of my very, very frustrated short-selling friends is I said, name another profession on the planet where somebody with zero experience can massively, massively outperform a 20- or 30-year veteran. You're not going to get someone that suddenly picks up some electrical tools and becomes a better electrician than the guy that's done it for 20 or 30 years, or a basketball player or a journalist, this is the only profession or pursuit, financial pursuit on the planet where a professional with decades of experience and training can get smoked by somebody with absolutely no clue what they're doing. And I want to give you one anecdote because I'm sure there's, that they're somewhat entertaining. 
um, we were selling our house in L.A., and I had um, somebody doing some repairs. And an elevator repairman was telling me how he was bought a stock he called Jivo. Um, he did not know what the company did, um, and he, but he told me he doubled his money in it and asked what I should do, when, what he would do with this. And I asked him, do you have any idea what the fundamentals are? He said, I have no idea, and I do not care. And then I looked it up, and I think they made biofuel for airplanes, which probably isn't going to work out so well fundamentally. And so I sat him down, and, I, and the guy was probably making 20 bucks an hour working with someone else, and I said, I'm going to give you one piece of advice, and it's probably the best advice that I could give your viewers is realize that you have no clue what you're doing, and if you've made a bunch of money, liquidate, don't celebrate. That was the advice I gave him. But what, what does that say, though, about where we are in terms of fundamental investing, Robert? I mean, look, I, I have very experienced people on my investment committee, people like John's brother Pete, who came on yesterday and was trading these on the momentum or the trend and would be the first person to suggest to you that the fundamentals have nothing to do with anything about the way or the time frame in which he's trading those stocks. Yet he is an experienced person. He has made a lot of money throughout his career and he does know what he's doing. And yet he is taking full advantage of this new market environment that we find ourselves in. Uh, well, if you're good at musical chairs, if you develop some kind of sixth sense for musical chairs, God bless you. Go, you know, ring the bell and cash it in. I personally do not find myself to be a great um, music, musician in the chair category, and I don't know that many people who are. And oftentimes um, there's a little bit of luck and, uh, that goes into the, to the, uh, both the success and the failure, bad luck on the downside. I don't know what to say. I, I've never seen anything like it. Um, avoiding is probably the best call, but if someone's got a knack for it, God bless them. What do you also make of the fact that, and we raised this point er earlier on, is the, you know, the CEO of AMC, you know, Adam Aaron, sort of warns about investing in his stock as part of the filing today, but the very same people who are buying shares of AMC, and, and these are, you know, I got to be a little careful in the, in, in the way that I say it, um, you know, they love the fact, AMC does, that the shares are being bid up, they raise capital, they raise equity on the back of that to help the business. But at the same time, the people who are helping in the cause, the ones that Adam Aaron is reaching out to and saying that, hey, we love your free popcorn or whatever, are getting diluted in the same end of that sentence by the very act that AMC is taking advantage of the people who are investing in his stock. And I don't mean necessarily taking advantage of literally, but you get the point. Well, it's funny. I, I was listening to things you said, and I was not in my head in agreement with most of them. But when you got to the point of dilution, I actually disagreed. All of these companies should convert their business model to be not in the business of selling tickets for movies, but in selling stock. They should become stock sellers. GME, AMC, go down the list, BlackBerry, go into the business of selling stock. That is the very best thing you can do for your company right now even if it involves dilution, because in the end, a lot of these companies may not survive from a solvency standpoint without this liquidity. AMC had a list of three things they were going to do with their cash from the sales, buy other theaters. That'll be interesting to see what happens there. Probably not that likely. Invested in their business. I'm not sure what they're going to do there. But then they thirdly mentioned deleveraging. I promise you that's their number one priority. They're paying down the debt. They should sell as much stock as humanly possible right now, as much stock as the market will consume, sell it all day long. And they, they continue to do that. And you can't fault them for doing it either. They're, 
They're using the market to their advantage. And any CEO in the same situation, theoretically, would want to do the same thing. Josh Brown, you have something for Bob? I was just going to say, if AMC wants to take the stock to 100, very simple, announce that you're using these funds to buy Bitcoin for your balance sheet. Uh, Mr. Chapman, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a big fan of your, your commentary, and, and I agree with everything that you said. But I wanted to just uh, maybe push back a little bit on the idea that uh, this will become emblematic of the crash. I, I agree that that could be the case, but it doesn't have to be causative. And I think we've seen similar uh, eras where, like, I was thinking about the Soze Bandits the other day, and I know you remember that. I don't know if all the viewers I do. do. Remember, I but this do was remember a situa- the Soze Bandits. So this reminds me a lot of the so, so the small order execution system allowed retail know-nothings to jump in front of the orders of larger hedge funds and asset managers. And it went on for probably three or four years, let's say the early 90s. Uh, and a lot of retail people became professionals through learning that system. And of course, eventually it got arbed away uh, and the weaker players couldn't stick it out. Um, but this reminds me of that. You've got people who have an advantage over traditional asset managers, at least temporarily, because they're reading every post, they see what their fellow apes are about to pump up next, and they jump in <laughs> front of it. Do you see that similarity? And if so, you'd agree with me, the So's bandits didn't lead to the crash of the stock market. If anything, it happened in the middle of a bull market. No, I, I do agree. I don't think that it's going to be causal. I do think it's symptomatic. But there's such a long list of things. I mean, you read any article about the real estate market right now where people are just, they don't want to do inspections. They want, have no, no contingencies, no financing. They're, they're, I saw a real estate agent going down the street recently with, with her cell phone making a video of, uh, of a property for somebody uh, to buy, and they were just going to buy it just based on the cell phone. Um, I know another friend of mine that bought a condo recently, closed on it only to find out the walls were full of mold, but he decided not to do inspections. So I think all of these things are just symptoms. And to me, it's a great time to go kite surfing. It's not a great time to be investing. Um, it's, it's just there, there are times just doing nothing is the best thing to do. And if people can find a way to minimize the time they spend investing right now, I recommend it. Um, but I, I do think this is going to end extremely badly. We shall see. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, Bob Chapman. We'll catch up with you again soon. We'll take a quick Thank break. You. Up next, we have a big call on the big banks. Top-rated financial analyst Mike Mayo joins us. If you think he was bullish before, wait until what he has to say after this break. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The Biden administration is announcing plans to share excess U.S. COVID vaccines with other countries, starting with 25 million doses. Most of that will go to the U.N.-backed COVAX program. The White House says that 80 million doses will be sent overseas by the end of the month. Which countries will get the vaccine and how much is the U.S. holding in reserve? That's tonight on the news at 7 p.m. Eastern. Biden will make his first overseas trip as president next week. Talks are set with U.K. Prime Minister Johnson and others during NATO and EU meetings. Biden and the First Lady are also set to meet Queen Elizabeth. 
Russia's National Wealth Fund selling the last of its dollar assets. The $186 billion fund has been cutting dollar holdings since Russia was sanctioned by Western countries for annexing Crimea in 2014. And the Supreme Court limiting the use of an anti-hacking law to charge people with computer crimes. The justices ruling that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act could not be used to prosecute a Georgia police officer for using a database at work for personal purposes. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate that. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. The rally in the financials continuing today. The sector hitting another record high. Our next guest says that run isn't even close to over. Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo Security, number one ranked analyst in that space, joins us once again. Mr. Mayo, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I said before in the tease, if you think Mayo's bullish, you ain't seen nothing yet. What you call a $200 billion opportunity for not only the banks, but for investors to take advantage of. Tell me. Well, that would be the change in the market valuations if everything plays out the way I expect. And I think the next catalyst for the banks is another 20 percent potential earnings upside due to capital return. Uh, and the benefits from the yield curve. So we can go to capital first if that works for you, Scott. Yeah, I mean, we're, that, that's what this is really all about, right? It's this opportunity to return more money to shareholders, which in turn drives up share prices. Well, get this number, Scott. You have the annual Fed stress test results in a few weeks later this month, and we estimate that banks will return twice as much capital after this next Fed stress test. We estimate banks will then be returning $120 billion of capital. And we think that's made easier on the Fed after last week's hearings. I mean, you had the, uh, the congressional hearings uh, for the large banks and, you know, less than one out of every seven questions were about the health of the banks. There are literally three times more questions about ESG than the financial health of the banks. So you don't really have Congress saying, well, wait a minute, Fed, don't allow banks to return capital. So we think uh, they have the green light to do so at the Fed. We think that's what will happen. And afterwards, that amount of capital return, the, the all-in yield, the cashback yield, that's buybacks plus dividends combined, should be 7% at the banks. That's how much they should yield. That's 200 basis points more than junk bonds. So talk about value. I mean, I know on your show today, you've been talking a lot about momentum, but with banks, you have momentum, higher earnings estimates, more cap return and good stock price performance. You have momentum plus fundamentals. That's really awesome. Who, and then you have another catalyst after that as it relates to the yield curve. But I'll stop there for a moment. Yeah. Let me just ask you, who takes advantage of the scenario that you just laid out the most? Well, Bank America has been our number one pick all year. It remains our number one pick. We think they can return a lot of capital and especially Citigroup, when you're trading at one times tangible book value. You know, Scott, I've been doing this for 30 years. It used to be you're at tangible book value when you're going into a recession, when you're worried about the balance sheet. I, they're off selling assets probably at prices well above what they're marked at. So Citigroup can buy back stock at tangible book. They, they're a beneficiary too. Jenny Harrington has a question for you. Jenny? Hey, Mike, how are you? Good to see you. Um, I'm curious about just how long you think the runway of this outperformance ultimately ends up being. Do you think it's the kind of thing where we're in a market where the performance gets consolidated in a short amount of times and we see a huge run up in the next kind of six, eight months? Or do you think it's more, you know, eked out over the next several years? And, and this has to do with more market mechanics and how things are trading and working now. Well, that, that's a great question. And 
everyone's always looking to trade bank stocks that get out before they blow up, right? Because that's been the experience. Remember, and Scott, you know this, um, I was negative on banks for 17 years until about five years ago for structural reasons. And I think what's underappreciated is structurally, the banking industry is better positioned both from a balance sheet standpoint and from an income statement standpoint. So we think this has legs for the next three to five years. This is a cyclical recovery and a structural play at the same time. And on that cyclical part, the other part of this is banks are big beneficiaries uh, from uh, the, the recovery from the pandemic, the yield curve, any inflation, um, and higher interest rates. So if you're looking for a play on that, banks have $1 trillion of excess cash. Uh, they have so much cash right now. So any increase in yields on securities or especially loans when loan growth comes back is gravy. And take the CEO of Bank America at our conference two weeks ago. He said as they get those benefits from higher interest rates, that money falls to the bottom line for investors. That's, you have to love that. Yeah, that, that's Brian Moynihan and uh, Steve Weiss, big fan of not only Mr. Moynihan's, but you've been a, a shareholder of B of A for a while. You own that. You own Goldman. You own the XLF. You own, you know, SoFi and, and things like that. But you got something for Mayo? I do. And, and this is a, a, a little off the uh, beaten path. You talk to the bank CEOs, you talk to the CFOs, talk to the treasurers. They've all come out and declared on, on Bitcoin saying they want to be there. In your opinion, is that just saying, OK, we want an option on it? But there's really they don't really see the legitimacy of it as an asset class and a currency. Well, so I'd give us the inside take on it. Well, I, I think all banks want to have a call option on possible strategic paths. And we talked about this five years ago in blockchain. So you need to have, you need to be in the game, but you don't have to be there all the way. They're also listening to their customers, but at the same time, it's the job of bankers to be conservative. So you don't want to be leading the way here. So if you're uh, uh, you know, a late follower, that maybe that's too late, but you need to at least know what's going on. Um, having said that, um, several banks, uh, including Jamie Dimon, have said that you know they think these uh, some of these cryptocurrency markets are, are frothy, and so not everybody's into the idea of uh, these asset values. On the other hand, you know the, the use of some of these digital currencies to make operations more efficient um, and straight straight through processing and all these uh, new technology advances that they want to be in the game for that. So difference between the asset values versus the use of this technology to become more efficient. Right. By the way, that last point is super exciting. I mean, that's why I'm still so excited uh, with the banks over several years. We think the banking industry will trend toward the best efficiency in history as the front end gets digitized for customers and the back end gets automated. Yeah, our, our group owns a lot of them, so uh, it, it plays well. Mike, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. It's nice to see you again. Be Thanks well. for having As I said, Dr. J's got calls in, in Bank of America, in JP Morgan, in Key Corp, in Capital One, in the XLF. Josh has JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, some of the fintech players like PayPal, too, and, and, and MasterCard. All right, coming up, John has unusual activity today as well. Plus, June is Pride Month, and we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own CNBC anchors and producers. Here's our own Krista Lilla. 
I was working on a story recently and I learned 42% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. That statistic to me was shocking. One of the biggest challenges we all face is coming out and being accepted by our family and friends. My advice to other members of my community who are struggling, know that you're not alone, you're here for a reason, and it does get better. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. It's time for unusual activity. John Najarian, what do you see today? Well, Scott, uh, instead of just those rebel stocks, we're seeing Fisker. Fisker, 9,200 of those July 1750 stocks, uh, 1750 calls change hands with the stock at about 1533. So a $2 rally from here uh, to get to there. Um, I will probably be in this trade, the July trade, Scott, four to five weeks. Second one, Texas Roadhouse, obviously reopening play, 6,000 September, 100 calls trade with the stock at 94. So a $6 pop to the upside. You got all the way out till September. I think that one really works for you. Um, and two quick updates. Number one, Peg Seguro, P-A-G-S. We talked about it when it was a $48 stock. Today it hits 54, I believe. And we've taken half that position off. And go, go internet. Um, it was 13.25 when we tagged it last Thursday, I believe, Scott. And today the stock traded up to about 14.70, and the options more than doubled. Still have half of each of these positions on. Okay, thanks for the update there, Dr. J. Ask Halftime's coming up next. Send your questions in by video, and we'll play them on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back right after this. All right, let's answer some of your questions now. First up, Jenny, I've got a video question for you. Hi, this is investor and hypnotist Peter from Framingham, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And I wanted to get the investor's opinion of GlaxoSmithKline. I've owned it for a while, and even though it's part of the biopharma space, it always seems to perform terribly. Thanks. All right, thanks for the question, Jenny. So we've owned it for a long time too. It has performed terribly. It's been too long that we've owned it. The only money we've really made is from the dividend. One of the things, one of the reasons we've owned this for so long is that we've always believed there's a lot of um, locked up value in the company. And now that they're spinning off their healthcare business, their consumer healthcare business, we think that some of that value will start to be unlocked. So they're spinning off the, um, like I said, the consumer health care, which is like Sensodyne toothpaste, they're going to be able to focus and invest more on the pharma and vaccine businesses, which are things like vaccines for shingles and cancer drugs. And as that happens, we think we'll see probably 5 to 8% earnings growth ahead. It's trading really cheap, 13 times what we think are depressed earnings. So hopefully this is finally the beginning of value creation and value being unlocked. Hopefully this 
there's upside from here. Okay, thanks for that. Steve Weiss, a video question for you now. Hi, my name's Elaine. I'm from Perth, Western Australia. I'm an investor and I'm also retired and I'd like your opinion on Snowflake. Thank you. Oh boy, I know where this is going. Steve Weiss, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to leave out the governance issues or maybe I won't. To me, the company's got poor governance paying the CEO so much that's ridiculous. But away from that, Look, there's a portion of your portfolio where you can own speculative names if you typically don't. And to me, trading at 100 times revenue, it's speculative. It's growing like a weed. Everything I hear about the technology and the business is excellent, but there's only so high I'm willing to go in terms of multiple and valuation. But that's just me. You may have better appetite for that. But at this level of the market, I think these stocks are very risky. Okay, thanks for that. Josh, to the video. Hi, this is John in Upper Manhattan. My question is for Josh. I'm wondering um, if I should get out of IIPR. I've been in it since it was like 18 bucks a share, and I'm wondering if now it's time to move on into like a reopening play you've been talking about, like Leslie's or Boeing or Simon or whatever. Um, thank you so much. All right, John, good stuff. Okay, innovative industrial properties. What do you think, Josh? I have to confess, I had not heard of this company until I had to do some research to answer this question, but what an amazing story. So basically, they are uh, the only publicly traded REIT that owns all of these grow houses and medical cannabis facilities that other operators then pay them rent in order to use. It's all above board. They're in states where medical uh, uh, cannabis production is not only allowed but encouraged. And they have this arbitrage because there aren't any other large-scale uh, landlords, basically, who can step in and take on these projects. So uh, if you're in it since 18, you, you've not killed it, like knocked the ball out of the park. It's 181. So I wouldn't say don't sell any. However, it's a really unique situation. There aren't any competitors. And this is a story that I myself want to learn a little bit more about. The one negative here, obviously, I'm not first discovering it like Columbus discovered America. This stock already has a huge valuation. 4.4 billion market cap on 138 million in revenue. So if you can come up with some negative uh, reason to sell, maybe that would be it. Maybe it's fully valued, but uh, really looks like an interesting story. Okay, good stuff. All right, big earnings after the bell. CrowdStrike and Lulu are reporting. We'll find out how the committee is playing those because we do have ownership on the show today. We'll do that straight ahead. A couple of big names reporting after the bell today, CrowdStrike and Lululemon. CrowdStrike shares up nearly 6% in the past month. Lulu's down roughly 5%. All right, Josh, you first. CrowdStrike, CRWD, as we said, up 3% year to date. Expectations going in? Uh, I think expectations are high. This is one of the only high beta uh, tech stocks in that whole group of stocks that's within 10% of its record high. It really didn't give anything back. This is trading at a very reasonable 50 times sales. Uh, I, I, uh, I've said many times on the program, I'm a long-term investor here. I think cybersecurity is going to be one of the biggest issues the world faces right alongside climate change. And CrowdStrike has, a, has an opportunity to be the premier name in the space. So for that reason, I'm willing to make it one of my only names trading with this kind of valuation. I have no edge on whether or not they'll report five or six cents, which is expected, or much more or much less. I'll be watching alongside everyone else, but I might be opportunistic if the stock sells off because I really believe in the long-term uh, picture for this company. Okay, Doc, Lulu, uh, 20% from its high, and as we said, down 8.5% mm -hmm. 
year to date. What's next? Um, what's next is uh, if you ever buy their stuff, uh, you will keep buying their clothing. Um, these guys have uh, an enviable spot similar to Apple as far as people that like it love it. So, Scott, uh, I don't think that it's just a pandemic play where everybody was just in yoga gear and uh, sweatpants, if you will. I think this one continues, has legs. People will go back to it. Uh, right now, the straddle's trading at about $16, which means about a 5% move. I think that 5% move is to the upside from here, Scott. Right. So I'm staying long. Okay. Keep our eyes on that. Doc, thank you very much. We'll take a break. Final trades after this. Thank you. All right, we'll get to finals in just a second. Wanted to call out NVIDIA, though. It's up 2% today. That's a new high. Reiterated top pick at Evercore and B of A. Josh, you own it, so just wanted to get your thoughts on this stock, which uh, has some uh, good life again. Yeah, it uh, looks like the street is catching up to something we've been saying on this show for about 1,000% now, uh, which is that this is going to be one of the most important technology platforms in the world. Bank of America is saying investors still underappreciate the size growth of NVIDIA's enterprise business, the largest piece of the company's data center, which has hundreds of Fortune 500 companies just taking the early baby steps in starting to deploy AI, mm -hmm. which NVIDIA will be uh, the, the champion of. So I'm, I'm staying long. Uh, the story keeps getting better and better. Just give me a name then for final trades, please. Oh, um, my name for final trade is GM. New all-time high today. Yeah. What do you know? Ripping. All right, Steve Weiss. FedEx. Dr. J. NTR, nutrient player, phosphates, and so forth. Bang. Okay. Jenny? Medical properties, 5.3% dividend yield. All right. Good stuff. Fun show, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.